We have started our series in Exodus. And um, just a little recap. Moses, from the age of three months, spent half his life in Egypt as an Egyptian prince. The second half as a shepherd in exile. And now God has revealed himself as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, self-existent great I am to Moses at the burning bush. And he has commissioned him to return to Egypt and to bring out God's people. He sent his brother to meet him, to help him. And so we have coming before Pharaoh, the great ruler of the greatest superpower of its era, two old men and a stick. God has heard and remembered his covenant. Exodus 6, verse 5. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I'm going to preach um, today um, regarding um, the plagues, and that's Exodus 7 to 10. And you'll be glad I'm not going to read every single verse, um, but we are going to start in Exodus 7. So Exodus 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And verses 10 to 13. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff, his stick, before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent, a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, the magicians, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. So this is the first confrontation. Moses has come with a message um, to let my people go that they may come and worship me in the desert. And Pharaoh's magicians mimic the signs that God gives Moses and Aaron, but God's power is superior. And we have here a pattern, as David Pawson says, of words followed by works, discourse followed by demonstration. And we're going to see that as we see the plagues unfold. Pharaoh had hardened his heart, so God would begin to lay a message upon message through the 10 plagues. Psalm 105 gives us a summary uh, of the plagues, starting at verse 24. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people and to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, and they performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. 
they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in the land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. And so God sends these plagues to Egypt. And what we're looking at um, today is the purpose of the plagues. Now, um, recently I was um, staying in Mozambique um, in a a children's center, and it turned out that I had five days on my own uh, in the guest quarters, the kind of um, guest compound. And... um, and I had five days on my own there while other guests were coming, had, had come and then were going to come again. And actually, I wasn't on my own um, because to my surprise, as I went into the little row of toilets that night, there was a frog um, just sitting on the door. Very little frog gazing up at me with beady eyes. And um, every day I would find the frog in a different place. One morning, I kind of step in through the door and there's the frog on the floor and I, I, I'm very surprised and I jump, but also the frog jumped, the frog jumps onto my leg and I kick in off the frog and uh, eventually um, the frog, I think I found the frog in the toilet bowl on another morning and then he disappeared. And so, um, you know, one frog, the plague of frogs was Frogs in abundance, frogs everywhere. They came up out of the River Nile. Um, They were in the cooking pots. They were in the toilets, but they were also in the bed. And um, similarly, um, when I was a kid at school, I remember um, what was called a plague of ladybirds. And um, for some reason, circumstances were very good for ladybirds that year. And there was a bumper birth of ladybirds, hatching of ladybirds, and they were everywhere. They were everywhere. Ladybirds, wherever you walked, there were ladybirds. People slipped over. This is nothing like that. These are happenings of ginormous proportions. I remember um, a hailstorm one summer, the end of the summer, and we still had kind of the tent canopy on our children's climbing frame. Um, and we came, there'd been this massive hailstorm, and we came back, and it had it strafed like a, like a machine gun. It had strafed through the tent, and there were kind of just these lines where hail had kind of cut holes in the, in the tent, and we had to throw it away. The hail in this plague was so big that people and animals were killed because it fell on them. These were sent by God, and we are going to just look together at what their purpose was behind these plagues. And from reading um, Exodus, I must admit I have slipped slightly into Exodus 6, slightly over into Exodus 12, Um, but in reading Exodus, we see the purpose of the plagues. And the first purpose is that, that the people of Israel know Yahweh has redeemed them to be their God. He reveals himself 
through the plagues and he is rescuing his people to be their God. Exodus 6, 6 to 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, the plagues. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." So it's that the people of Egypt will know that the Lord is God. But second, it's that the Egyptians will know that Yahweh is God. And you see the progression as the plagues grow in intensity, um, the response of the Egyptians. Exodus 7 verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Exodus 8, 19, then the magicians said to Pharaoh, they're even realizing, this is the finger of God. And then Exodus 9, 20, whoever, this is when God foretold the hail coming and Moses warned people to get their, their um, workers and their animals out of the fields. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves, his workers, and his livestock into their houses. And the people who left their workers and their livestock outside, they were, they were, those, they were all killed. And then we also see Exodus 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve or worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? And finally, Exodus 12, 38. This is as the people of Israel escape from Egypt and are um, led out of Egypt. It says, Exodus 12, 38, a mixed multitude or many other people went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So Egyptians came and joined the people of Israel and were grafted in to the people of Israel as they were rescued and brought out. And so thirdly, um, it's so that Pharaoh acknowledges that Yahweh is God. And Exodus 8.22, On the day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell. This is the fourth plague, um, with the plague of flies, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know. He's talking to Pharaoh that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And also, the plagues led to a legal release. The people were being held hostage um, illegally by Pharaoh. And we see a bit of a spoiler here through the Passover the atonement, the redemption of the people through the blood, but also through the Red Sea and the death of Pharaoh and the pursuing Egyptian army. We see judgment meted out by a righteous God and we see the legal release of his people and that justice is served. And we also see a demonstration of grace and mercy. God shows his grace um, to demonstrate his power, but he shows it gradually. 
first of all, you know, the, the plagues at the beginning, the river turning to blood, the frogs, these are environmental, they are inconvenient. We then get the gnats, the flies, they become irritating, the boils, very painful, and you can see that there is a ramping up of warning. This is warning. This is God's grace. It's his mercy. He is giving warning. And um, we also see that the plagues move on to death, death of animals, and then finally death of the firstborn and destruction. And we also see in that fourth plague a distinction between God's chosen people and the people of, of Egypt. John Piper says, the exodus, the ten plagues, the miraculous Red Sea crossing were to demonstrate the astonishing power of God on behalf of his freely chosen people. So God's first love is rooted in the value of his holy name. This is all for God's glory, but not in the value of his sinful people. God's rescuing hand for his people did not depend on their value, but on his name, his glory, and his choosing them. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, know, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So God in his mercy brings out the people and in his mercy gives warning. And um, we also see um, a final judgment on the gods of Egypt. They, if you look at Egyptian pictures and statues and writings, uh, all of the plagues are representing different gods, whether it is the Nile, god of the river, the frog beetles, health, um, the sun god, um, Pharaoh himself. And God was demonstrating one by one um, that he is the Lord and he is the Lord Almighty and he is God, Yahweh is God. Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson summarize this so well. Pharaoh, as predicted, refuses to let Israel go and the war of the gods begins. The plagues, like many Invasions gradually escalate. They build in intensity. The early plagues affect everybody and can be reproduced by Pharaoh's magicians, whereas the later ones affect only Egypt and cannot be reproduced. But they also escalate in a literal and geographical sense. 
The first group of three plagues strikes the water and the ground as the Nile bleeds, frogs rise up from the water and the dust turns to gnats. The second group strikes living flesh with swarms of flies, the death of livestock and human flesh being covered in boils. The third group moves higher up to the skies, bringing destruction through the weather, bringing locusts on the east wind and even blackening the sun. If the ancient world were a three-story house, the earth, the waters beneath and the heavens above, God brought destruction to each story and humiliated the deities that governed each. The Egyptian gods were ferreted out and removed from the house like a pest or an infestation from cellar to rafter. And so, as we see from that summary, um, God brought judgment on the gods of Egypt. And um, we, we see here in Exodus 9 that the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the, all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you had been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And in Exodus 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So God demonstrates his power, his righteousness, his right to judge, and his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh himself. And so as we read these passages in scriptures, we need to ask ourselves, what is our response? We saw um, Pharaoh's response, and his response was to harden his heart, and God actually gave him what he wanted. God gave him ha uh, the heart that he desired. And um, I won't go into a lot of detail about that because that's another sermon. But we also look in Revelation, and there is replication of a number of the plagues. And again, it is a God of mercy and a God of grace giving us sinful people who have set their hearts against him time. And it is a warning with um, an ebb and a flow of intensity. Um, wars, rumors of wars, <laughs> plagues. A warning to a people that when Jesus comes again, it is a time of judgment. And that time is the end of time. And the chances to have soft hearts, responsive hearts, will be gone. Deuteronomy 7 again, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. That you may know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations the abundance of God's love, his mercy, his grace. But verse 10, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. 
And we see in the warning of the plagues, both in Exodus and Revelation, that the God of mercy and the God of grace is giving time. Now is the time for salvation. Now is the time to ask God to soften your heart and to save you and to save you from judgment. And so God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go that they may worship me. And our response with soft hearts is to worship. And we can see how Pharaoh tried to minimize that worship. And the the worship, some translations say to serve me. Let my people go that they may serve me. And it's, it, it was so much more than what we think of as worship, you know, which is maybe singing songs or praying. Um, they were going with their livestock to offer sacrifices to God that would be costly and that would involve the shedding of blood, pointing eventually um, to the one sacrifice who brings us in, Jesus, in his death on the cross and his blood shed for us and who can bring us in as holy worshippers into the presence of God. And you can see that Pharaoh tried to minimize their worship. First of all, he said, you can go, but don't go very far. Don't go very far. When Jesus calls us to live lives that are laid down in worship, he's calling for our all. He is calling for everything. It is costly. It is costly. Jesus said, Take up your cross and follow me. Look at the cost. Look at the cost. And then we see that Pharaoh tried to minimize who could go. And he said, just the men. He wanted to leave the women and children hostage. Just the men can go. God is in the business of saving households. You can expect that when you worship him and give him your life, that he is in the business of saving households. And so Moses refused to be taken in by this compromise. Everyone had to go. The little ones and the men and the women. Everyone gets to come. Everyone gets to worship. And then we see Pharaoh try and limit um, what they could bring with them, the means to worship, the, the livestock. And again, Moses isn't falling for that. But, you know, God calls us for our all. And it isn't just our possessions it is, it is everything. It's all our belief systems. It's our will. Um, Jesus, um, in Mark 12, he was asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you know, the Lord, your God, is one. The Lord, your God, is God. And then he, then he called the people to worship, to love the Lord, your God with all your mind, your strength, your heart, your soul, your emotions, your body, everything. And Pharaoh, in trying to minimize the means to worship, that still happens now. God is calling us to worship Jesus with everything, with our all. And I am indebted to our sermon from Andrew Haslan on Ephesians 4. Um, which has the phrase, one Lord, one Lord. And he was talking about the context of Ephesus um, and the Christians, the new Christians there, and their temptation um, to add Jesus to the God they already had, to just add him in, um, a phrase known as syncretism. 
And it's like, you know, Jesus plus. And my mind, I just immediately got a little bit judgy, a bit judgy. And I found my mind going off to thinking about, oh, yeah, yeah, I do remember a friend of mine, um, you know, genuinely Hindu by background, but she also had a picture of Jesus on the wall too with everything else. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, and I also... You know, I'm thinking about, you know, places where I've gone where all these saints are up and there's all these kind of praying to saints. And, you know, and I was, I just found myself going down this little track. And as often happens, the Holy Spirit just reminded me of a book I was reading last summer and the challenge I felt. And the book was by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. And I even read that whole book, you know, a bit smug. I'm, I'm getting quite far in, and I just felt, you know, that money wasn't my God as well as Jesus, um, and actually that I was doing pretty well on some other things as well. And then we get to, we get to what my work meant to me, and my, you know, my role in my work role, and uh, ambition and achievement and how I measured myself, and then the emotions that were tied up to that when, you know, things were difficult. And wow, they, you know, it was just a revelation. And the Holy Spirit reminded me again, as I'm thinking about how do we worship, how do we live lives of worship? Actually, it's whatever, whatever takes God's place. John Calvin noted that the human heart is an idol factory. And I would say, you know, our original design, when God created men and women in his image, that we were designed to worship, we were designed to surrender. And Tim Keller says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give that you seek to give you what only God can give. For example, money is an idol, and it can't be removed, only replaced. It must be supplanted by the one who, though rich, became poor, so that we might truly be rich. He goes on to say the idol of success cannot be expelled. It must be replaced. And Thomas Chalmers talked about the heart needing the expulsion by a greater affection, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. When we deal with the idols of sex, money, approval, family even, work, possessions, people-pleasing, we need to be so captivated by Jesus that he is enough. We cannot pull out idols. Instead, we replace them with a greater affection and a greater worship. And so our response to the God who has set us free, who has called us out to be our God, that we may be his chosen people, his treasured possession, our response with soft hearts is to give our all to Jesus, the one who saves, the one who has made the way, our Passover lamb, and the one who calls us to worship with 
everything that we have. Thank you.